0: This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio.
1: And on tunein.com, Hing.fm, and upsnap mobile.
2: Contact Talk Radio.
0: Welcome to Seek Reality Radio with Roberta <laughs> Grimes joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about your reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here is Roberta.
2: There is one reality, just one, and neither mainstream science nor mainstream religions can tell us everything about that reality, because at this point, both are belief systems. One is atheistic, one is theistic. Neither is engaged in an open-minded study of the truth wherever it may lead. But fortunately, we have abundant and consistent witness from people who are used to thinking uh, that we used to think we're completely dead, but who are used to thinking on a bigger plane now because they live in a greater reality that we can only talk about. We know now that they're living and that their reality actually parallels our own as it is in the same place as our own. We will be talking about the implications of that in various segments of this show but the important thing is that what all that we're learning tells us is simply this. You are an eternal being. You never began and you never will end. You're living on a a plane much greater than anything you ever imagined. Our guest this week is Dr. Karen Herrick. She's a counselor with special expertise in helping dysfunctional families. She joins us for the second time to talk in particular about the effects of things like alcoholism alcoholism, and other addictions on families, and especially on children who grew up in those families. Karen is one of a new wave of professionals who use what we're learning about the greater reality to better inform and aid their work. Welcome back, Karen.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Karen, let's go back first and talk a little bit about your history, because some people may not have heard the, other, uh, the earlier um, podcast we did.
1: Sure. Um, well, I was, um, I, I was born into a very dysfunctional, alcoholic family. My father was alcoholic. Um, in fact, he was overseas when I was born, and my mother was not married. <laughs> and she was oh, a, well. Catholic, <laughs> a Catholic who had um, gotten involved with a Protestant, and um, so she was kicked out of her house, and my Protestant grandmother took oh. her down in the country to live, and um, then they had to wait for my father to come home. And then there was a minor problem because my father was already married, but he hadn't told anybody.
2: (laughs) Minor problem, yes.
1: (laughs) So anyway, I was born into that. (laughs) And um, so that mixed mixed marriage of the Catholic and the Protestant, um, my mother always had the guilt and shame of of what happened to her. And she never found a priest that she could talk to or wouldn't, you know, really didn't go to anybody to try to figure this out, what, what her basic guilt and shame was about. Anyway, he kept drinking, and as with any alcoholic family, there's a lot of arguing because um, there's always the responsible person who's the enabler of the alcoholic, trying to get the alcoholic to stop, and the alcoholic is always denying that he's doing anything wrong. Um, And so that's one type of dysfunctional family. And um, there was a book written years ago um, by Janet Woid. It's called Adult Children of Alcoholics. And she was married to an alcoholic and had three kids and then got divorced and went back to Montclair University here in New Jersey and and wanted to get an um, educational doctorate. And she said she wanted to study whether having an alcoholic father, how it would affect her children. And they told her that um, that would never be an important topic for anybody to read. And she said, well, she really didn't care. She would do it anyway. And her book sold over a million copies. Wow! So anyway, she became a millionaire on that book. And really what we learned from that was, People would, there are different characteristics, which I'm going to go over, and um, people would come in and say, well, I have those characteristics, but I didn't come from an alcoholic family, so why do I have them? And then we discovered that any kind of a family where your emotional needs weren't met, where your parents were busy with other things, um, would give you the characteristics of coming from an alcoholic
2: or dysfunctional family. Wow, interesting.
1: Yeah, so I'll just go into what some of those are, and then you can ask me anything you want. Okay,
2: that's great. Um,
1: One of the problems they have is uh, people, some of the people, is they have difficulty flying a project through from beginning to end, so they will start many things and not finish them. Uh, Some of them will lie when it's just as easy to tell the truth, and that was because you would be in trouble, so you would just lie to get out of trouble and um, try to keep yourself, you know, beige like the wall so that nobody could really blame you for anything. Because yeah. blaming is very common in an alcoholic family, the the alcoholic, of course, blames everybody else for for his drinking, and I say his because there are more male alcoholics in this country than there are female. Uh, statistically, um, some of uh, many of them, uh, children who have been raised um, with, in this kind of family, judge themselves harshly. They hate to have difficulty having fun. Uh, they take themselves very seriously. Um, They have difficulty with intimate relationships, mainly because they never saw one that really worked. Um, They overreact to changes over which they have no control. They seek approval and affirmation. Um, They usually feel that they're different from other people, and they keep themselves kind of in a bubble, maybe, um, and look very cool and aloof when, really, uh, they're just really trying to look like they, they are normal. Now, what they don't realize is that dysfunction is normal. So that coming from the kind of family they come from, that's about ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of the families in America. Are you serious? No, I'm serious. Right, and we're all driving around at night, looking in the windows, trying to find where. Oh God, how are they doing it in there? Well, there's just just different kinds of dysfunction, you know. So most people have something, and then we can talk about what that means. Um, so then. <laughs> Some of them are super responsible, and some of them are super irresponsible. So it's a very black-and-white type of um, um, attitude that you get from living in, in these kinds of families. And they're extremely loyal, even in the face of evidence that the loyalty is undeserved. And then some of them turn out to be impulsive, like the alcoholic, and tend to lock themselves into a course of action without giving serious consideration to alternative behaviors or possible consequences until they're up in their neck and a real big problem. Um, And then many, they're guessing at what normal behavior is because they don't really know. So those are the 13 characteristics that uh, Janet wrote about in her book in 1983.
2: 83, wow. So so you're telling me that it isn't just alcoholic parents that can cause this syndrome. It's parents who are not sufficiently nurturing their children?
1: That's right. And, you know, and there's not a lot of communication going on there. Um, They're tied up with their own lives and um, just not really paying attention to the children. Now, I think in in our culture today, some of that has gone the other way, where now the kids are running the household.
2: Yeah, 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 right. But
1: still in these alcoholic and drug-addicted homes, the parents are busy uh, doing, you know, taking care of whatever it is they think they have to take care of. And then we usually have the roles in the family that come out of that so that, Um, I know that you said you were from an alcoholic family, and I am too, so um, we could go over what roles we were, Um, and this is generally in any family, but they're just um, more rigid usually in an alcoholic or very dysfunctional family, so the first child generally, doesn't have to go this way, but just generally, is the family hero, and um, that's the little mother, the little father of the family, they're very responsible, and they overachieve, they they either do well in school or sports they somehow bring pride to the family and um and they're not really much fun because they're very serious and um but they you know the family's very proud of them. The second child it's almost like they looked at the first one and said i'm not, I'm not gonna do that that's too hard and they became the scapegoat or the problem child and they're very they have anger issues uh very withdrawn sullen they get negative tension um they're just you know the parents that bring in this is the kid that brings the parents into therapy, not because of alcoholism, but because we can't do anything with this kid. You got to do something with this kid, and you know, yeah. and I'll say, well, you know, we have to, um, we have to praise him or her, you know, when they do something, you know, that that's noteworthy. Well, he, they don't do anything, you know, they just have a a negative opinion of this child, and so I tell the child that they're the ones that have has been scapegoated in this family, and they probably get blamed for a lot of things they haven't done, and they agree with me, and. um so that there's lots of things wrong in the family, and they're going to help me find out what that is, and it isn't just them. Then the third oh. child is the lost child, quiet, shy, and sensitive, more introverted, daydreamer, um, kind of drifts and floats through life, follows the other kids, um, is not good on decision-making at all, You know, just kind of is a follower. Um, the fourth child is a mascot or a clown, and they use humor either in a positive or negative way to get attention. And we've all seen that, you know, in our different classes we've attended. And then there's a, in some models, there's a fifth child called the placater child, and they just try to make everybody happy.
2: Huh, this is so interesting.
1: Isn't it? And well, then um, I think yeah. the, I think the role should be on Oprah. I mean, I, I did it on a television <laughs> show in New Jersey one time, and they got so many calls you wouldn't believe. And they said, that's my family, that's it. Why didn't somebody tell
2: yeah. me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know? but uh, but it's certainly not 90 plus percent. You're exaggerating a little bit of the Well, family. that was Some the statistic
1: the- when I started. Now, that was over 25 years ago. But uh, Virginia Satir uh-huh. used that statistic, who was a very famous female family therapist. And she started seeing people in families because before that, you would only see one person in therapy. But then and she was working with prostitutes in Chicago, and one prostitute one day brought in her mother. and So she had a whole different you know, view of the family after she talked to the mother. <laughs> yeah,
2: and then they started yeah, bringing wow. in their
1: boy, their boyfriends and stuff. So then we did family therapy from that. But, yes, the statistic was very high. I'm not really sure what it is now. But the people that come to me really feel, you know, that they are they are alone in this. They're the only ones who feel this way. And, and so part of the um, therapy that I do is to... to make them understand. I mean, haven't you watched Oprah? Haven't you seen all these people on these television shows of um, judge Judy? I mean, look at the dysfunction that we mm-hmm. just use for entertainment.
2: But the problem is you tend to think it's you. You don't tend. I mean, yes. I, I, when you describe the oldest child, right. my, my, my sister is a big, big on Al-Anon. She, my younger sister tells me I have every bit of a uh, first adult child of an alcoholic oldest child syndrome. Um, but that's just me. I've never known myself any other way, and right. I don't feel abnormal. I feel as if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do.
1: Well, you uh, seem pretty pretty normal to me in that you are very uh, much an overachiever and you function very highly, and that is the hero. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. The negative problems of that is... Um, is that someone who who does that sometimes? Who is overly responsible? They really aren't a lot of fun, and they're very rigid. And you're not like that. Well,
0: thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, there are
2: people who might disagree, like my husband. No. Um, well, yeah. I, somebody I, just I, lived I think, with you. They I, I can come in and tell like me a that, few though. things. I, I think what we do is we, um, you know, we have to live inside our, our minds and. Right, we kind of remake um that neighborhood that that environment to be more comfortable for us and for those we love right, so we probably over time mellow from those original kind of from that pattern that original pattern oh right but but um. I, 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 it's absolutely true that, um, I was expected to achieve. My, my father wanted me, imagine hating your child as much. My adopt, my alcoholic father wanted me to grow up to be the first female president of the United States. Right. And, um, I actually, Bill Clinton is five, five days younger than I am. I actually went through a grief process realizing right. that I was not, last thing I wanted every president. Oh my lord, what a horrible job. But, I, I realized I had disappointed my father because right you know I was I was supposed to do it and somebody else did, uh, and and that's troubling. That's maybe the first time I realized that what they that I was trying to please him. I don't think I ever felt that way before then.
1: Yes. Well, that was but, great insight, though, that you realized that.
2: Yeah, and and um, I, I but I think that that made that's probably part of the al- adult child of an alcoholic syndrome. That to some extent, you're living. Your par- your parents' dream for you, because you're trying so hard to to please them, to yes. make it yes. all better. To ma- you know, somehow, if you're good enough, if you're perfect enough, if you do well enough at school and if you achieve enough, the fam better. You're you're yes. carrying, um, as my sister says, you as know, If you've got to save the world before breakfast, right? That's that's kind of the feeling I think I've had. Um, and now I realize, thanks to talking to you, where it comes from, because it's not a normal feeling. Most people don't go around thinking that the world rests on them to save. But well, Some, I
1: some I people do. Now, now, that is why people go to Al-Anon, because the joke is that an Al-Anon, a, a really real codependent, um, when they drown, someone else's life flashes before their eyes. <laughs> not, <laughs> not their life.
2: <laughs> for me, it's the world's life. Okay. <laughs> um, my, my, my mother um, had a, an ambition for me, too. Now, she was not an alcoholic. She was the enabler, and I can see that very well um, right. now after conversation with you and thinking about it. Um, but her ambition for me was that I would gr- write the great American novel. So I dutifully became a novelist, um, went on to be a lawyer, and now I'm writing a seven novel series that is the great American novel. That my Good. mother wanted me to write. There so you go. That's again. I don't seem able to get away from my family, uh, and, and here I am. Certainly, you know, in, at retirement age, I should be grown up by now. But that just shows you the pull that this kind of environment has, and it imprints on you when you're, when you're too young to really uh, question it or or assert yourself against it.
1: Well, I think um, there, there's a difference, too, between, I know in my family, my parents never got to live their dreams, And so then they have more of a intensity about your dream.
2: That's right. That's true in both my parents' cases. Yes. That's but absolutely if, if right. Par-
1: if you have parents that have, you know, gotten their college education and done a little bit of what, what they're supposed to do and, you know, did it right, how we know it's, you know, it helps if you already have an identity before you go into marriage. Um yeah. You know, people then wouldn't have such intensity on what their kids are doing.
2: But that's really true. Um, now that you say it, both of my parents, and this is probably true of a lot of people listening, um, your parents were frustrated in their own lives and had right. ambitions for themselves, and they put those ambitions. If they're if they're somewhat dysfunctional, they put those ambitions on. And then what are the children to do? They they're in a position. Where they, they're trying to live their own life but if it gets imprinted on you so young, I was probably three four, yeah. and both of them were saying these things to me, so oh, sure. I don't think I could fight it, I, I just assumed that was part of of normality that I'm going to have to do these things
1: Well, you know, um, and that's part of us coming down to this earth school you know, which is you know what some people call it, right? For us yeah. to, to find out who we really are, like when you were talking, in beginning your show you were talking about how you know, we are loved and um, you are perfect. Well, when you come out of these families, though, you don't really come out loved. You, there's conditions upon them loving you. And then that's part of what the journey seems to be in uh, down here on Earth is that we have to acquire that love from the things that we do and and learn and mature that we are really okay, even if we didn't follow their goals, you know?
2: Yeah. That's right, um, another thing, my sister who she's only 18 months younger, but she's very wise, um, and she she's dealt much more effectively with all of this and one of the things she says to me was, "How come uh, uh, our kids and our grandchildren don't feel that they have to get all A's and And we were both uh, you know at the top of our class. I don't think she and I ever thought it was an option. I think we knew we had to be
1: yes.
2: Well, That's it's right. time for us to, to stop and, and just uh, pause for a minute. My name is Roberta Grimes, and we're you're listening to Seek Reality and the Contact Talk Radio Network. Every week at this, we spend an hour together working to better understand the one glorious reality in which we all live. We'll be right back.
0: When she was eight, Roberta Grimes had an amazing experience of light. She spent the next 50 years researching the afterlife to try and understand what had happened to her. And the result is her book, The Fun of Dying. Find out what really happens next. Roberta's book is Cliff Notes to 200 Years of Abundant and Consistent Afterlife Evidence. It will show you why extinction is impossible for you, explain how you can enjoy the death process, and describe for you in wonderful detail the glorious heaven that awaits us all. Available on Amazon, in Kindle, and in print, The Fun of Dying will start you on a thrilling and life-affirming voyage as you learn the glorious truth about who you really are.
2: Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Our guest is Dr. Karen Herrick, and she's helping me figure out why I am as I am and hopefully helping you as well to better understand how the family of people, because our parents are just human. They have their own issues, problems. I understand my, my father's problems uh, right. coming through. Oh, and, and,
1: that's a, and that's a good thing because you don't go through life angry. Um, that nobody really appreciated you for what you did or blah, 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 whatever it is. Um, because a lot of people that come from alcoholic or dysfunctional families are very angry. Uh, really? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, well, and that would I be just... the scapegoat or the problem child. Um, and maybe maybe they become alcoholic or use drugs or get pregnant early or do things that kind of messes up their life early. Um, and then, of course, they spend a lot of time blaming, you know, their parents. So I think if you have insight as to where your parents came from, then you have better insight on yourself and, and how you reacted to that. In fact, Carl Jung in his therapy talks about a five layered unconscious. The first layer was just what we, we were mentioning in the first part of the show, was that, you know, coming from an alcoholic home, you have these characteristics and you, you had played one of one a couple of these roles usually. The hero, scapegoat, lost child, mascot, or placator. And so that would that's really what you got in life. And now what are you going to do with it? You know, what are the yeah. assets of that and the liabilities? and then the second layer of his unconscious are your parents' issues and how th- those issues affected you? Um, so I mean like with Carl Jung, he was um, his father was a minister but not he didn't think a very good one. His mother was a psychic and um, she had lost three babies before him. and so you would think that he would have been covered about and all that, but she really was in the in and out of the hospital. so I think the woman was you know labeled mentally ill. And who knows how much of that was spirituality and psychic and, you know, mediumship and how much was really mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had all that, and he read his father's books in his library by the time he was 15, every one of them. And he knew God wasn't in there, and he knew his father didn't know where God was. So he spent most of his life in psychology studying, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and all of the things to get to God. And when he died, he knew there was a God. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. actually he overcame.
2: You know what his father didn't have. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's what we're a lot of us are trying to do, which is to improve on our parents' lives and try to um, um, try to be whole, even realizing where the deficits come from because it's hard to see them because you've lived with them all your life. It's interesting too, Karen, that children, people who grow up uh, with alcoholic parents, probably all tend to have entirely different. Uh, lives, what we discovered, my sister and I in conversation, is that I had a perfect childhood. I was, you know, the fair-haired child. They actually said in her presence when she was small, but she remembers it, they told people that they had her so I would have a companion. Yeah. Um, I was her playmate. Right. and uh, Rather, she was my playmate. Uh, she wasn't a separate person, and I was raised to believe that. Right. And I didn't know any better. Right, um, she had a very unhappy childhood, and I had a, the happiest possible childhood. And we lived in the same, house, at the right. same table. Often we're matching clothes. We had totally different experiences. Isn't that amazing? Though I mean, that is. But
1: that's normally what happens. Like there'll be people that come here for therapy for you know five years, and their family is saying their siblings, "Why are you going there? There was nothing wrong in our house."
2: You know, it's it's astonishing. And she has a lot of anger, but she yes. has memories. That I do not have. Um, yes, that's right. And, and I was present. I um, I must have blocked them. I just didn't even notice them somehow. Right. Um, I I the, the the memories I do have though are are of my father when he was drunk are are awful. Right. Um, to the point where I, I wish I had blocked them, but um, but didn't. But but it's 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 not just when they're drinking. The of the household experience is distorted yes. by that illness that they have. It's just astonishing to me how completely that's true. Um,
1: you grow up with the three um, rules, don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel.
2: Well, I was feeling, but I was I was in my own world.
1: Well, that's it. You're in your own world. You can't talk about feelings, you know? I, Nobody I, talks I, about feelings. What do you mean? I mean, I could just hear my father if I tried to talk about feelings, um, and my father even said to me once, uh, he was driving us to church, which he, where he dropped us off, and then he would go to the bar, and then he wouldn't pick us up. Oh, my goodness. And, and I said something about, you know, are you going to pick us up this time? I must have been about 9 or 10, right? And he said, well, he, yeah, I thought he would pick us up. And I said, well, sometimes you don't pick us up, and it's cold. And um, and he said something about, I don't know, I said some probably something about his drinking, and he said, who did I think I was, a doctor or somebody?
2: Oh, no. <laughs> so when I got oh. my
1: Ph.D., I thought, there you go. <laughs> I am a doctor.
2: <laughs> is, is is this true of all families? What about what about quote normal families? Let's say a family in which we have two loving parents and they they don't neither of them has substance abuse issues or really major other issues. Let's imagine that generic family, um that, that ideal family. Do their children also grow up with Issues that they need to address as adults? Oh, sure. Because everybody
1: has something. I mean, even those perfect people came from other parents, and there's got to be somebody in there that affected them or something or uh, some goal that they didn't make. You know what I mean? So, sure, but that's how dysfunction goes on a, a continuum also. But in alcoholic families, I mean, there are all different kinds of alcoholics. Now, if an alcoholic drank and became nicer, probably the alcoholism then didn't affect the family as much. And if the, if the wife didn't argue with them or fight, well, then you know the kids would say, "Well, Dad just drank a little." So it all depends on how of the perception. Um, for instance, it's interesting though. This I love this story, and um, I don't know if I told this story before. If I did, stop me. But Ronald Reagan, his mother, and, before her time, told both of her boys, "Your father's an alcoholic, and it isn't your fault. And what he does, he loves you very much. However, he's, he drinks, and this is what happens." Right. So anyway, Ronald Reagan comes to New Jersey and he for some political thing and Riley Reagan this is confusing, um, is the he's the head of the division of alcoholism at that time and he's also the civil servant of the year. So he gets to be with Ronald Reagan. And so Ronald Reagan says something to him about, Oh, you're the head of alcoholism in the state he said, You know, my father was an alcoholic. And Riley says, Yes, so was mine. Now Riley went to prison and reformed from that and all that kind of stuff, because Riley was an alcoholic and he wouldn't mind. He's dead now, but he would not mind. I got his permission to tell this story because I said, Riley, this story should be written (laughs) down. So Ronald Reagan says, well, my father was an alcoholic, and Riley said, yes, so was mine. And Ronald Reagan, uh, Riley said, he kind of looked off in the distance and said, yes, my brother and I often wonder what we could have been if our father hadn't been an alcoholic. Really? And this was the President of the United States. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Wow.
1: So, you know, people have a hole, um, if they don't understand um I mean the alcoholic the adult children of alcoholic movement was big in the early eighties and in California they, they, they always had AA and Al Anon. Well they had AA in nineteen thirty and al anon nineteen fifty. And then there were these people and, and the first step is I'm powerless over alcohol. So of course there were these aggressive adult children of alcoholics who are now twenty or thirty or ever old. And they didn't want to say, we're now powerless over alcohol. You know, I'm not. So they founded the Adult Children of Alcoholic Movement, and they started their own 12-step meetings away from the um, organization of AA and Al-Anon. Well, then when Al-Anon realized how many people were joining this movement, they got their own Adult Children of Alcoholic Meetings. So in the 80s there, we had all kinds of meetings for people who were raised in alcoholic homes. And then other people could go also that were raised in just different dysfunctional homes. Um, So it was a wonderful time to really kind of find out about yourself. And then, of course, Oprah started and, you know, then everybody's into self-help now.
2: One of the things that you and I are working on together is, uh, and, and with some other people who are all phenomenal, is the notion that once understand that reality is much more complex than the clockwork universe or than the you know airy religious kind of reality that a lot of people feel they're they're living in two realities one is the clockwork universe the other is this you know god is somewhere and it's you know somehow on a cloud whatever but there is one continuous solid mostly solid reality much of which is not we are not aware of when we're at this reality, this level. It's an um,
1: unseen reality.
2: It's 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 unseen from here. Right. But but what what I try to help people understand is that when you die and your brain ceases to be the place where you think you are, but instead your mind tunes to a to a higher vibratory level, a new solid reality, and you go on with your life. It's right. just like changing channels. But that reality that is right here in the same place we are, just as all those TV channels are in your room, you just pick one up. That reality affects everything that we're doing, everything we're thinking in ways we don't even fathom. And one of the things I guess I wonder is, how do you see that in your practice? Um, How how does that affect the work you do with people? Are they... Do you have people who have extraordinary experiences, for example, as they begin to become better? Or how does that help them?
1: Well, we call, we're call we talking really about the stages of recovery. And you're talking about a spiritual stage. Okay? Yes. So people yes. come in, many people come in with no religion, religious background. Some people come in with some. Um, here on the East Coast, there's a lot of Catholics. Um, so they come in with that religion. Um, or no religion that their parents gave them. So many of them do not trust anything like that. So I don't start with that kind of conversation, okay? Right. And then right. one of my questions would be, um, you know, are you religious? Or so what religion were you raised? And then, but I'm not religious now. Okay, great. So you're spiritual. Forty percent of the population is spiritual. Um, so um, what is it that you do believe? I always try to get that within the first sec or second session. And And sometimes they'll say... <clears throat> kind of like me. I didn't believe in any religion. I figured, um, well, number one, they argued about which one was right, so I just left that conversation. (laughs) And I thought God was probably not watching us anyway, because this was too much of a mess, you know? And um, so that I thought it was something about the wind and the American Indians that I had read. And it seemed to me, and I would walk in nature a lot, because I lived in the country, and um, it seemed to me that God was behind nature, And so I could see that there would be some kind of power in the wind, and maybe that was a force that was like God. So they go, they do something like that. Okay, great. Well, then we'll start with that. And as we go along with their um, progress, then I just kind of bring in different spiritual stories, or maybe even like Eben Alexander, I just went to Crete to be at a conference where he spoke. And, you know, last October, I gave that story out to anybody who wanted it from Newsweek, because, you know, he wrote the book Proof of Heaven, and there is a heaven, this neurosurgeon went there. and Anytime I can give something like that, I, I give it. So what you, you just tell me what you think. We can talk about it, you know, someday when there's not much else to talk about. And so I try to educate them in that way. And they're, you know, if, they, if they're interested. If they're not interested, I don't go there at all. And what, what we found in, in working with adults from alcoholic families was that spirituality was usually, just generally now, the last stage of recovery. And some people did not get there.
2: Huh. When you said the last stage, I mean, they basically have resolved their guilts or griefs or anger. Right. Um, okay.
1: Yes, they've gone through all that, and they still, you know, um, it, they, they believe whatever they believed when they came in. That's as far as they want to go. Now, that's not my usual client, because my usual client really is very spiritual, and some of them have had um, a lot of spiritual experiences. Uh, Many of my people have been incested, and when you've been incested or had a lot of fighting in your house uh, or maybe been beaten, you have disassociated as a child. You've left your body, in mind anyway, so that you're not there. Because if I'm not there, I can't get in trouble and they can't get me. So the disassociation that you learn how to do as a child then gives you a propensity to have spiritual experiences in adulthood. So that's People from a dysfunctional home, that's one of the positives, um, is that you will have more spiritual experiences as an adult because you you already know how to disassociate. So if you're in a car accident, you will go have a near death or you will leave your body and float around the operating room because you know how to do that. Even if you don't know you know how to do that, that's when you realize you do know.
2: So you're saying that when children are abused in childhood... They leave their bodies often?
1: They disassociate in some way.
2: Huh. Okay, that's something else I didn't know. Um And well, that's Kenneth thing, Ring, he
1: was he was um he is a PhD out of Connecticut and he's now lives in California. But Ken Ring, when when Raymond Moody did his first book in nineteen seventy five, then Kenneth Ring got involved with I mean some blind people had near death experiences, but in the near death they could see
2: They could see, right. Yeah.
1: So anyway, he said, now, why did this group of people have the near death and this group didn't, right? So he did a a study and the the only variable that the people had who had the near death was that they had had a traumatic childhood of being beaten or incest, you know, some kind of deep trauma. Really? So that's how he figured out that it was the disassociation.
2: I didn't know about that study, but that's very interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that's one thing some people will say to me: Well, if near-death experiences really happen, why don't why doesn't everybody who's near death have one? And uh, right. I I just uh, don't think that's a relevant question. But to some people, it's an important one. And you just have given a good answer. That's great, Karen. Thank you. You're welcome. So what happens then when they get to the point of feeling? Better is that they feeling more whole, feeling more integrated, feeling more at peace. Is that they then begin virtually?
1: Oh, sure. And then maybe they'll trust me with some stories um about things that have happened because you have to trust your therapist to tell her these things because other therapists or medical people maybe they've told and they've gotten, you know, well, we'll give you some medication for that. So they really, but they really do. And I've got trust me, and I've got a reputation here. Now, where one lady came in for. a uh, relationship problem and it was funny the first intake I took it and everything and then she starts to leave and she goes oh and I know you're interested in this when I was five I saw my dead grandfather I never met him but I knew it was him from pictures I said okay thanks she said you're welcome
2: <laughs> how did she know you'd be interested she knew about your, your other, other she your knew about my spiritual experience. experience
1: training yes. <laughs> so that was not at all important at this time right but she wanted me to know
2: <laughs> but um. Well, I- Go ahead. But, but that but that's good and and i think that's something we should certainly point out that that's the kind of, of validation that we love to see in just randomly coming up in our lives over and over and over and over again um we see little bits of evidence that that all that reality is right where we are now that's, right. that's great thank you
1: and in my phd i did i, I studied 130 some therapists um, mental health professionals i and i gave them um, a pretest and a post-test and i I taught them about transpersonal personal psychology, Carl Jung, Wing James, and, and what um, spiritual experiences were. And uh, about 80% of them had had them. So there's this big theory out there somewhere that therapists or doctors um, and nurses, they don't really understand spiritual experiences. But many people have had them. They just can't talk about them in their workplace
2: yeah that makes sense Right. well it's time for us to break again briefly you're listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network and our, our guest is my dear friend Karen Herrick and we'll be right back
0: If you've ever wondered why you're here if you wonder whether God is real if you wonder why life isn't fair or whether there's life after death, let Roberta Grimes help you learn the joyous truth about your own reality. Roberta has trouble with believing things. She's always wanted to know. So she spent decades studying nearly 200 years of afterlife evidence. In the process, she made some wonderful discoveries about God, reality, and your own eternal nature. The truth is better than your most optimistic hopes. Seek reality with Roberta Grimes on Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Why wonder and worry when at last it's possible to know?
2: welcome back to seek reality with Roberta Grimes on the contact talk radio network we're talking with the wonderful dr. Karen herrick who 's a counselor who uses the kinds of information that we learn from studying the greater reality in her day to day work helping especially dysfunctional families and people who have who live in dysfunctional families or have are from dysfunctional families her book is you 're not finished yet which is if you're at all interested in these topics, it's a great book to just pick up and learn more about the kinds of possibilities for your life that you may not have known were there. Welcome back, Karen.
1: Thank you. Uh, one thing we haven't said is that I'm located in Red Bank, New Jersey, just if anybody wants to know that. And my email is Karen, K-A-R-E-N, at Karen Herrick, H-E-R-R-I-C-K, dot com.
2: Dot com. Um, and so, and Karen is taking uh, patients. So, if anyone or, or or subjects or what you call them clients, I guess. Yes. So, so if you have issues in these areas, um, she would be someone that certainly I would go to. Um, I, I think I've mostly fixed myself, but having done that, I know it's not easy to fix yourself. So, therefore, it's good to have some expert to be able to give you some shortcuts. Yeah, it goes faster. <laughs> it does. <laughs> So, so, so all of us are from families where, where all of us are sort of damaged by the time we grow up. I don't think you, uh, it's possible to grow up without having things happen, some of which you can't really feel you can talk about to anyone else. Some of them happen outside your family. Um, and so it's, it's kind of important to feel that there are people that you can talk to who will understand, listen, not blame you, not judge you and try to help you integrate uh, and make, your, make yourself whole and comfortable so you can go forward. I think it's too, too often we try to be a soldier. You know, I'm a soldier and I can yeah. do it myself. But, um, and the I, biggest
1: I, area I, I think that we need to have help in is how to communicate um, because if you're living in a family where there's a lot of, um, um, you know, anger issues and people acting out, and then, then there's periods of silence where nobody's talking and you just kind of tiptoe around, you know, hoping nothing's going to happen again to start it. Yeah, we right, don't learn right. how to really communicate. You don't know how to, if someone says something that hurts your feelings, you don't know, um, you know, how to say that. You know, that just hurt my feelings. I wish you wouldn't talk to me in that tone. Or yeah. Nobody has ever taught us how to communicate, and that's the biggest problem. That's really what um, what I do the most here, I think, is, is um, and that's why group therapy is good, um because they learn in group they can say anything to each other and there's trust and they learn for the first time maybe what 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 it's like to have another adult who really will not attack them or blame them for what they're saying they'll just listen to them yeah well that's that's a big thing to learn how to talk and to trust that you will be validated and listened to and then to pick those kinds of people on the outside that are going to do that with you you know because we don't know how to pick people that are really trustworthy because I mean, if an alcoholic, I know my mother and grandmother told me go in and ask your father not to drink because he'll stop for you. Well, I went and asked him not to drink; he didn't stop. So, so what yeah. did that teach me? You know? Yeah, yeah. That I wasn't important enough for him to stop. But that was—you don't do that to your kid anyway. You know. I know they were desperate; they were trying to figure out anything, but they never did go to Al-Anon, and that was would really have been a helpful thing. You know, to to have done that.
2: I think one of the things one of the things I sometimes tell people is that there's a reason why dentists can't do, fix their own teeth. Mm-hmm. Their perspective is wrong. Mm-hmm. They can't step back enough to to do the work. And I think the same is true of us individually as we try to work on our, ourselves spiritually and and emotionally, intellectually. We don't have perspective. We can't do it ourselves. So it's wonderful to sort of say, okay. I'm still in control of my life. I can make my own decisions, but I'm going to ask somebody to step back and kind of do that little dentistry part of it and give me better insights, and then I can I can proceed from there. I think that's a strength. That's not a weakness.
1: No, that would be a strength, and also to know that you could have a difference of opinion. You don't have to agree, but that people could just listen to what your difference is, and that's a big problem with people that come from dysfunction because everybody had to, be with whoever was in charge. You had to think the way they thought and do it the way yeah. they did it. And, you know, they, it was not, differences were not allowed. So then a lot of people are stifled in that way.
2: One of the things that Karen and I are working on together is a conference which is going to be held in July in Scottsdale. And we picked July in Scottsdale so that we could give attendees a really good deal because inside a hotel, who cares how hot it is? But um, it'll be July uh, 10th to the 13th. And it's going to be about. New developments in afterlife communication. One of the things that people don't know is that there is a tremendous amount going on in the field of afterlife communication. Karen and I are co-chairing um, this conference, and uh, we're going to, in a few, um, a, a Dr. Craig Hogan, who is doing a tremendous amount of work to put it together. Uh, to talk more concretely about the kinds of people who, and the kinds of things they'll be talking about, but you'll be astonished to find all the different ways that, that the dead communicate with us. And the more and more we're, we're learning how to initiate those communications and we're learning how to make them happen. And I think within, uh, certainly within our lifetimes, but maybe within the next ten years, we're gonna have what amounts to a telephone a way for uh, you and I if we want to talk to someone who has graduated to the next level to be able to actually communicate and that to me will be the holy grail. That will be the most wonderful moment in human history because then we will A, know that they're alive and B, imagine for a child uh, uh, trying to talk to a parent or a parent to a child or, or spouses who are separated. Um, I know you're excited about the conference, Karen and so am I.
1: Yes, and I think um I actually recommend some of my clients go to mediums um to be able to talk to either their dead loved ones or well they're all they're all dead but um <laughs> the ones that have passed just recently or even your parents so why don't you go and talk to your father about that that he was so rigid about such and such and now you're so rigid about it maybe where he is now he feels differently about it so why don't you just go and see well Maybe Maybe they have a friend who went. I said, well, talk to the friend and and see if that helped her or him, you know. So I have to teach and coax. And and then, of course, people that come in that are in chronic grief because they've lost their spouse or a child. I mean, that kind of grief, they do want somebody to lift that, you know, help them with that. So they will go sooner probably to a medium. But um, I think that more therapists need to realize, and they shun, you know, the subject because it's, sometimes, you know, against your religious values to go, but um, more therapists need to teach clients that it's okay to go and get information wherever, and that this information that's coming from the other side is very loving.
2: My experience with mediums and my parents' is, uh, actually my mother only died a year ago, I haven't tried to talk to her yet, she's communicated with me in really astonishing ways, but uh, my father died 20 plus years ago, and he, whenever I was doing my research, which I did in her book, I did research with a lot of mediums to see if it was real right and it was, and there there was always they would describe this man at the back of the crowd of my loved ones, exactly describe him, the good ones would be able to do, but they would say he won 't come forward he won 't talk right This is my alcoholic father, twenty years almost to the day after he died my, my daughter coincidentally and her husband were consulting a medium. And this medium said, by the way, there's a man here, described my father, and he asks if you will deliver a message, will you please tell your mother and her sister that I am very, very sorry. That's the first communication we've ever received from my father. Now, I hate to think that he, I forgave him a long time ago, so I, is that distressed, but um,
1: he had to forgive himself, it sounds like.
2: I I I'm not sure he even has even now. I I had a a visitation dream with him and I think he's only on level 2. Um uh-huh. Cuz it was it was pretty dark there. It was funny. It was like there was a you know how there's a glow before dawn around the horizon? Yes. There was that glow around the entire horizon. Um he was not in a not in a very light place. But uh, I I think one of the things people have to realize is after people graduate to the next level of reality, they're still just as alive as they are now, and they still have issues sometimes. They don't have some issues they had here, but some of them they still do, and I guess I wasn't really as aware of that now, seeing my father's experience.
1: Right. Yes. Um, You know, the more that people will read about the different, um, I would say, levels there are on the other side, that people do go there, and you know, if you've lost children, children grow up there, and they learn, yes. and there are uh, spiritual guides and angels helping them grow, and they're watching you. Uh, they're always with you. The people that love you, um, you, you if, and if you can't feel them, of course, that's pretty normal. Um, but a medium would help you, and and also you become more aware of different signs and and different feelings. Like I always get chills when. I'm saying something that the other side wants me to say, either to myself or to somebody else. I call it chill therapy. But they let me know that, yes, keep that up, keep that up. That's really what we want them to know, know.
2: One of the things that we've learned is true is that if we reinforce the fact that they're communicating, if we say, thank you for showing me uh, for making me be able to smell your cologne, or thank you for uh, showing me a group of butterflies flying together and it's really not butterfly season, or whatever it is they've done to give you a little sign. Thank you for that. Thank them for that. Uh, right. Because when they, know, when they know you've noticed, they'll redouble their efforts to do more. Um, they get discouraged. Uh, I, I know a, a six-level being who communicated through his mother, and he, she, he just died five years ago, and he gets very discouraged that his friends don't notice his signs. And he says, eventually, I give up on people. That right. I'm trying to say, here, I'm fine. And, you know, I, we, 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 I still snowboard where I am now. And and, uh, and they get very discouraged when they don't have the opportunity to um, get that feedback. So, for sure, if you think someone is communicating with you, just even if you're not sure, if it's a maybe, just say, thank you for that sign. Show me something else. No, give and me more.
1: Especially to, uh, to learn to see trust is so important. Whether you're down here in a dysfunctional family to to learn how to trust, but it's also important to learn how to trust those signs and feelings. You know, I mean, I had a friend that said, "Well, if it's really my wife, I want to go to work today, and I don't want any stoplights, right?" So he goes oh my to work. Goodness. He goes to work, and he, there's no stoplights. You know, he usually has eight of them. And then he says, <laughs> "Well, now I need another sign." I said, "You just oh got it. <laughs> you That's just outrageous. got it." I know, but you can't. They won't trust oh. it. You see. So we're going to have to keep them coming and coming. So it's, it's important to say, well, I asked for no stoplights and I got no stoplights. Now, now let me yeah. just at least for 24 hours believe that that was really my wife.
2: Yeah, but that's why it would be so good to have a spirit telephone um, because uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz calls it a soul phone because he was on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh-huh. If you have that and you can talk to somebody and hear their voice, Right, you know they're still alive, and I think that's what people really are hungering for. I need to know for sure that he's he or she is still alive, and therefore I'm always going to live too. Um, that revelation would change everything. If we had that for sure, and we're so close to it that it's a little frustrating to me that we're not quite there yet. Yes, it's just it's going to the whole world will change at that point, and that's exciting. It really is.
1: Well, it is. However, I think it's exciting, too, that we're we're now, I mean, we're talking more about mediums. We have all these mediums that are speaking at all these different places and on television. Yeah, and look right. at all the television shows we've had in the last five to ten years on mediumship. Yeah, I mean, no, once it's, that it's that movie came out with a little boy that could see dead people, I forget now what that was, Bruce, Bruce Willis?
2: Yeah, I, I think, remember the movie, too. Um, yeah,
1: I think that was the beginning, and ever since then, it's really exploded. So, you know, there is a process going on, and there are lots of things people can read and, and movies they can watch. And um, I remember there was a movie Defend Your Life with yes. Meryl Streep. Remember and the guy yes. ki- got killed in a car accident and she was his lawyer and he had to defend his life yeah. and then decide where he was going after that. And it's just all of that stuff has reality to it. I mean, these people in Hollywood do not make this stuff up. They use yeah. what spiritual concepts we have and they put them in their movies.
2: What's happening, they tell us, they being the the discarnate beings who are working with some people on Earth, is that there's a great spiritual awakening taking place on the planet now, and if you're listening today... Um, you're probably part of it it's a it's a, a movement growing so rapidly that i could see it happening ever since 2010 when my book came out i've been doing you know a lot of talking about it and mm-hmm. i'm sure you see it too karen in your practice more and more and more people are aware of of what's going on it's not any longer just a few people and we're not kooks anymore right. uh, it's very right. it's very very exciting Unfortunately, is there is there anything you'd especially like to say, Karen, to, to, to people and, and give us your website again.
1: Oh, uh, the website is um well the uh at Karen at Karenherrick.com. That's my um uh, email address, and the website is um, www.KarenHerrick.com. um Karen. So I what I want to say is that you really are loved, and and I think, you know, in the middle of the night when people wake up and feel so alone, and maybe their family isn't talking to them, or somebody's just said something negative, you have to realize that you have spirits in that room, and angels, and loved ones who are just pouring love onto you, and it would be good to know that you're not alone. I don't think we're ever alone when I really think about it, and the more I learn about the other side, and how Mm -hmm. they're always hovering, and watching, and, uh, and trying to help us, so you are loved. And if you did have a a particular dysfunctional family, maybe don't use that family as a basis for your love right now. Listen to what Roberta and I are
2: saying. Thank you. We are we are all loved, um, and we're loved at a level that it's really hard for us to comprehend. Yes. I'm Roberta Grimes. My book is *The Fun of Dying*. Find out what really happens next on Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble as an ebook. We're talking with Dr. Karen Herrick, whose book is *You're Not Finished Yet*, and um, I, it's a great place to go if you're if these things are touching you at all. Um, it's got you've got to start somewhere. Her book is a great place to start. Also available at Amazon. Please join us, man. I think he's just delightful. He's one of those people whose near-death experience has completely transformed his life. You're going to love getting to know him, and so please just join us next week. And meanwhile, please join us at Afterlife Forums and join the discussion. Now go out and enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality, knowing that you are an eternal being and you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to
0: Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes joyous conversations about your eternal life to learn more tune in every saturday at 10 a.m pacific 1 p.m eastern for lively and positive discussions visit www.afterlifeforums.com to contact roberta email her at roberta at seekreality.com wishing you a productive week empowered by the truth of who you really are